Hello. A zone exists beyond the ether of Netflix, Amazon Prime, or even Blinkbox, where unloved films cower from a harsh world. This is Cinema Limbo, a place for films who deserve a second shot at success. Tonight's film is the 1978 supernatural thriller The Medusa Touch, starring Richard Burton. Joining me again is Chris Arnsby, a man for whom every day is New Year's Eve, and this episode was recorded in his front room, overlooking a ditch. Now, The Medusa Touch is an interesting movie because I was actually introduced to it by you. Oh, OK, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, I think, as, as we might establish later on, your knowledge of this movie is rather less than I was expecting. <laughs> a few years ago, I had a small Halloween party at my house and I invited some friends over and I stacked up on various horror movies on DVD, including actually buying... Blair Witch 2, which I still haven't watched, and I think I actually gave to a jumble sale. But you brought over the Medusa Touch, and you gave such a convincing pitch as to why we should watch it, that we did, and it was the only thing we watched. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was a terrific movie, very unusual and original, and uh, I've recently purchased the Blu-ray myself, and in the course of researching for this podcast I have actually watched the movie on Blu-ray once a week for each of the last three weeks so I now know it rather well <laughs> yeah I can imagine and you've presumably got a slightly cynical and misanthropic uh, view of the human race as a result well, exactly how much I agree with the main character we will come into later although you've seen my notebook that I've been using <laughs> yes, and yes. it does look like the ramblings of a psychotic it looks like the prop from Seven but I'm sure that's <laughs> fine I'm sure that's fine oh, yeah, the, there's the bit here on the other page about how I was bored with someone on the tube and just threw up all over him and then laughed and laughed and laughed <laughs> hmm. but seeing as you introduced the movie to me and you are the keeper of the gospel as it were how did you come across it originally? somewhere back in the 1980s ITV used to have a film night uh, and they called it Murder, Mystery and Suspense and the idea was that they gave it this overall title and it gave a sort of it gave a theme to what otherwise would just be a random Friday night movie but I mean I don't think this is an original joke but within our house the joke was always that the films were murder to watch it was a mystery why it got any viewers and the suspense was wondering when they'd finish and they were films from the fag end of Erwin Allen's career so things like When Time Ran Out and The Swarm Uh, yeah it was real bargain basement stuff I think occasionally you would get TV pilots and stuff dropped in and then one night one of the films was The Medusa Touch and I would have been 8 or 9 and I saw it and it utterly terrified me and as with a lot of these kind of films you watch them when you're young enough and you kind of create an emotional attachment to them and as far as I'm concerned, this film can do no wrong. We, we recorded another podcast where we talked about Freddie Got Fingered, and in the course of that, The Goonies comes up, um, and the fact that a lot of people really have a, an emotional attachment to that particular film. And I think it's the same kind of thing. I think you watch some things early enough, and it's effectively just love at first sight. You're just kind of blind to their faults. So I saw it in the 1980s, and then I think I was in the Virgin Megastore and I was looking through the, the videos and I saw it on VHS and it kind of struck a half memory with me because by that time I'd sort of forgotten this long ago viewing in the early 80s. So I got it on VHS, watched it, 
remembered it, thought that was brilliant. It came out on DVD. I upgraded to DVD. In fact, I bought it twice on DVD because the first time it came out was by was a release from Carlton and it was the worst transfer ever. Literally, because it's quite a dark and shadowy film, people would move and their face would smear across the screen. It was an unbelievably technically poor copy of the film and, and it was obvious that, that some, nobody at Carlton cared about this. Well, what do you expect from a company that employed David Cameron? <laughs> a little bit of politics there, but yes, you're quite right. I mean, they obviously just, somebody, they, they just went, ah, oh, this will do as well. And then the very nice people at Network released a better quality version, and I got that. And then the very nice people at Network, realising they wanted a good thing, released it on Blu-ray, and I bought it again. And I think it is the only film that I can basically say I've owned it on all all the sort of domestic formats. I've gradually upgraded from watching it on TV to VHS to DVD to Blu-ray. I don't think I can... There's no other film I can say I did that. <laughs> That's impressive. I'm sure I can think of a few in my case. Um... Oh, A View to a Kill. Oh, well. <laughs> Again, films from your childhood to exactly. a special connection with. Yeah, yeah, no, but that, that's exactly it. I, and I do feel the same way about this, I guess, as I feel about Star Wars and Blake Seven. You know, somebody coming cold to Blake Seven now is just going to look at it in absolute horror. And is... The best one in the world, Blake Seven, has dated quite a lot. And so I, 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 I don't. <laughs> so this man wearing a Doctor Who related T-shirt, yes, yeah. the name of a director on who no one else remembers. I know, yeah, yeah. Um, it seemed funny at the time. I think it's marvelous. I think it's just charming. But Blake Seven, for, the, for your benefit, listener, was uh, the BBC's take on. It's well, Star Trek. It's, it's sort of. It's well, not so much. It's more like Star Wars as a TV show. Yeah, but yeah. with that very pessimistic British point mm. of view. It's Star. Uh, and it actually aired in Britain the day that Star Wars was released. Mm, yes, it did. Um, but it was filmed in an electronic studio. It's done multi-camera in a way that is now completely antiquated. And although I haven't seen it in many years, I would be very much prepared to give it a shot if it was repeated. But a modern viewer coming to it cold would think, this looks like it was shot in a church hall. Yeah, you, were, you could probably run a clip from this and a clip from... a. Uh, a similar Doctor Who story, and people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. They, you know, no, I mean, no, they're, they're just indistinguishable. I mean, there was there was a huge overlap anyway in, in production terms. Yeah, I suppose to, to to stop me from dragging us too far off the subject, <laughs> it's the same thing that I've got an emotional attachment to Blake Seven, and so I don't care. I don't care that it's kind of creepy. That as a seven-year-old kid, I was allowed to watch a TV program in which the lead character was framed for child abuse. And the fact that the BBC thought that that was a suitable introduction to a hero for a primetime family science fiction show. You know, it's just, it's full of all these bizarre, questionable decisions. Mm, um, you're right. But who cares? Well, he was only framed. Yes, this is true. Yeah. You can't, I suppose, in a way, you fall in love with something. And it's just other people fall in love with The Godfather or other people fall in love with The Treasure of the Sierra Madre or something. I happen to fall in love with The Medusa Touch. I know exactly what you mean. I fell in love with a film I'm sure will feature on this podcast, Biggles Adventures in Time, which I adore, mm. even though it's clearly not a particularly brilliant film. Now, I know The Medusa Touch is 
possibly rather obscure. I mean, it's had, as I say, it's had VHS release and video release. It's now available on Blu-ray from the wonderful people at Network, who, in uh, the purposes of full disclosure, we have a mutual friend who works there. Oh, yes. Yes, we um, do, don't we? <laughs> which you've forgotten. Yes. Hello, Mr. Network. I don't know if he did the cover for the... Uh... No, I believe the cover's actually adapted from one of the posters. There's a poster image on the inside. Yeah, yeah, this is just... A, but I think I think one of the only reasons it survived, because it is a very, very forgotten film, I think one of the few reasons it kind of survived was that it did become part of that big Carlton film collection. So it just, it just kind of worked its way into whatever the British TV equivalent of syndication is. It became part of a package, and it would just turn up on... Anglia TV mm. or TVS or whatever and you would just sit there and you would watch it because what else were you going to do? You weren't going to watch Channel 4. No, and BBC 2 was just showing the news. Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, it's, it was a Lou Grade production, yes. of course, so it ended up coming under the whole ITV banner, which is how it's wound up at network because mm. they, they have a deal with ITV. But it's, it's odd that it should have been forgotten because leaving aside the fact that it has a central, terrific idea for a movie, which is the sort of thing that you're wondering why no one else has thought mm. of. It has an amazing cast. Uh, starting, of course, with Richard Burton. Yeah. In a performance that is both incredibly intense and magnetic, yet also requiring almost no physical effort from him whatsoever. <laughs> I, I, because I, it, uh, despite being top-billed, he... He's not actually in the film very much. I did watch this. I, I wondered if he was on set for... He must have been on set for about three days, if that. I think it's probably a bit more than that. But he's... Yeah, he's really not in it a huge amount. And the film is structured in such an odd way mm. that, that it starts with him... I think it might be worth going through the film gradually in chronological yeah. order because... Whereas in other films that we've talked about on this podcast the plot isn't that important or is well-known. With the Medusa type, it's actually... The plot is interwoven into the film very mm. cleverly. It starts with um, Richard Burton's character, a man named John Mauler, being apparently beaten to death in his own home. And the police arrive and discover that he is, in fact, still alive. And he's carted off to hospital and they follow clues in his notebook to a psychologist who tells them that he believed he had the power to cause catastrophes. Yeah, and, I mean, running against this uh, in the background is, first of all, there's a there's an Apollo 13-style space disaster going on, and there's throwaway references to a, a plane crash, and there's this whole background of things that have obviously happened um, that are never really... I don't think they're foregrounded particularly much at all, are they? For for a while, it's just it's almost just it, sort of it, detail. Yes, but there's so much effort being put into it mm. because I mean, at the at the very beginning of the film, Maud is watching coverage of the um, the space mission on TV, yeah. and the detective is investigating, who inexplicably is French. <laughs> yes, and but is French and played by an Italian. Well, of course, Lino Ventura. I should say at this point, actually, the whole film is based on a book, which. I tried to track down to read to prepare for this podcast. Unfortunately, it's out of print. But you, Chris, however... Yeah, it's, it was in the basement collection of my local library. And this is why libraries are important, people. 
because they hold on to stuff when nobody in their right mind would keep it. I mean, we were looking through this before we started recording, and we discovered that I am the last person to... Yeah, I've just looked at this, actually, and realised the significance. We looked at the date label. The last time this book was taken out was 14 years ago. It was taken out on the 29th of September 2001. Now, given that the cover of the book features a Boeing 747 crashing into Centrepoint in London, and it's a fantastically, lovingly detailed image, I find it incredibly significant, actually, that somebody took it out on the 29th of September 2001. That's, that's kind of creepy, in a way. And that connects with the film, because the film is all about coincidence mm. and the connection between disaster. Nobody actually had to persuade Richard Burton to lay on a bed covered in bandages. They got some other yeah. uncredited extra in to do that, uh, who must have thought, he must have thought it was the job of his life. Richard Burton's not in the film very much. But his presence really hangs over the film. It's, it's kind of surprising, and it's done in a number of very, very clever ways. I mean, going back and watching this again, this is a very, very well-edited film. And, it's, and the sound editing, the sound design is also very good. Richard Burton's character is in a coma, and he's hooked up to ECGs and all sorts of hospital life support. And the sound is often played over the top of unrelated sounds so that it becomes there's a technical word isn't there for sounds that aren't actually part of the scene that they're playing over. Non-diegetic That's exactly the word I was looking for The sounds of the EEGs almost become a character in their own right but at the same time and I'm jumping ahead a little bit towards the end but it's just an example of how well thought out this is there's a sequence where they're rushing towards the hospital. They play the EEG sounds over the scenes of Mauler in his bed they don't play them over the scenes of the characters rushing towards the hospital. And suddenly their absence is what becomes significant because they've been a presence all the rest of the way through the film. And there's a fantastic piece of editing right at the start of the film when Mauler goes to see the psychiatrist for the first time. No, it's not. It's the policeman goes to see the psychiatrist for the first time and they're talking about Mauler. And it cuts. It's a very abrupt cut to Mauler speaking to um, Zonfeld. And it's actually quite disjointed. It feels quite disjointed. It almost takes you out of the film in a way because one minute Zonfeld is talking to the police inspector then suddenly Richard Burton's character is there. And then it cuts back and you realise that what you've been seeing is a flashback but there's been nothing to indicate that you were watching a flashback. You're just kind of accept. You're just expected to take it in your stride. And then as they start talking... I think what happens is that as Zornfeld starts talking to the police inspector, they do a very, very slow fade back, so that what you have is a composite shot. You've got Zonfeld and the police inspector with Richard Burton's head superimposed sort of centre frame. And it stays like that for the duration of the scene. And then it very, very slowly zooms in on Richard Burton's face and fades back into the past again. And it's just, it's just an incredibly well-edited sequence, and it's an incredibly clever way of getting the audience used to the idea that this film is going to be cutting between its flashbacks, and it's flashbacks within flashbacks at points, isn't it? Because yes. I think when he's talking to Zonfeld, he's then talking about incidents from his childhood. So, yeah, it's, this, it's, it's a real sort of regression at times. It's a very cleverly structured film in that way, and in fact it was co-produced, and I assume the editing supervised, by Anne V. Coates, who'd worked with... David Lean, oh, right. and in fact edited Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, that yeah. So she was a very 
the high-powered, very experienced editor. And I think that's rubbed off on the movie. I mean, I, 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 honestly, I should have checked in writing in, in my notes to see whether or not she actually edited the movie. She produced it with the director, Jack Gold. It's a very strikingly short film. Lots and lots of just close-ups of people's eyes. And this is one of those occasions... I suspect this was a film that was released in the cinema and probably picked up a little bit of interest, but I don't think it, it really registered even when it was first released. But it must have looked fantastic. You know, you, to see it in a cinema, and effectively you would be sitting there in the dark, and, and on the cinema screen would be nothing but a giant close-up of Richard Burton's eyes staring out at you. It must have looked really, really good. I mean, it looks fantastic now when you see it on Blu-ray. Yes, it does. I mean, I'm sure it did attract attention, simply for the... The fact that you know it, Richard Burton is in it, the, I suppose the, that's true. The, the huge movie star, and it has such an extraordinary selection of supporting actors in various cameo roles. However, it did not perform particularly well with critics. In fact, Roger Ebert said it was his least favourite film of the year. Yeah, and he specifically singled out Richard Burton's performance as terrible. Oh, OK, I didn't know that. I mean, well, obviously, Roger Ebert says a lot of things. I've got to say that I, I, did some other, I did some research on other films released in 1978. The Swarm, I think, was 1978. Convoy was 1978. The terrible Bee Gees film Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was 1978. So I think, actually, we can discount... It may have been a lot of things, but it certainly wasn't the worst film of 1978. Well, that's as maybe... <laughs> There was a lot of competition that year. Yeah, I can imagine there was. And I think the, the, the way the film came about was interesting because Jack Gold actually knew the author of the book. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he actually mentioned his name so far. His name is Peter Van Greenaway. No relation to Peter Greenaway, <laughs> the artist and filmmaker. But uh, Van Greenaway had written a number of novels. I think this was his fifth book. Yeah. I, uh, that, in fact, is that the first edition that you have? It is. Or rather, that's, that's, that's absolutely remarkable. The, the library service has, although it is covered in library marks. So, yes, it came so out. So, it's ruined. Cost £2 when it was released, and it came out in 1973. That is, so, that's actually a, a nice little valuable item that you've stolen. No, 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 it's, it's genuine, it's just on loan and it's going to go back to the library and it can sit in the archives for another 15 years until somebody else decides they want to read it. But yeah, on the, the author, I mean, apparently, The Crucified City, The Evening Fool, The Man Who Held the Queen to Ransom and Sent Parliament Packing, Judas, with exclamation mark, which makes it sound like an unsuccessful sequel to Oliver. Um, and, I mean, the, the interesting thing is, obviously, this, the book is a book about an author. And in the book, Morlow, I think, has produced four or five books, as has Peter Van Greenway at this point. And I genuinely don't know how much is kind of an inside joke that Peter Van Greenway writes a book in which the lead character is a, is a barely-read, disgruntled author with a very jaded view of humanity. I think it's possible that you may be having a bit of a, an inside joke there. Yes, there is a, there is a self-awareness, mm. and that Mauler does become a, a villain protagonist. Yeah. And I think maybe Greenaway holds similar views. And in fact, having you know, watched the film carefully and listened to what Mauler says, I share similar views with him as well. I consider myself much more of an optimistic person and not a mass-murdering psychopath. Yes. But his views about you know, corruption in high places and that kind of thing... and some of his attitudes towards the military and war 
are not, I would not automatically refute. It's, it's interesting comparing the book to the film because they're both very, very similar, although, I mean, this, the structure of the film is simplified a little bit. Something that's almost entirely cut out of the film is that there's a whole subplot in the book that Mauler has connections to... Uh, People in high places. The secret state, yeah. And the theme, uh, one of the themes of the book is that the state is kind of preparing, not exactly for a take, you know, is preparing to just make Britain a considerably worse place with fewer civil liberties. It's around the time that there was actually a, a genuine conspiracy that was mm. looking into taking over yeah. the government from Harold Wilson. Yes, yeah, yeah. There was meant to, so I think he's picking up on a lot of the themes at the time. And he get he comes into contact with... In the film, it's not really mentioned. Um, no, it's, it's only in one scene, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, and it's not mentioned again. Yeah. In the, one of the things that happens in the film when they show clips from his journals is they include the line, no sign of L. And I think you're meant to assume that L is Lovelace, the uh, man who he gets sent to prison when he disastrously defends him in court. But actually, in the book, L is another character who he successfully defended as a petty crook and becomes a, an employee, for want of a better word, of this kind of secret state and is drip-feeding Mauler with all this stuff about how the state is really operating behind the scenes and what's really going on and what the public don't know. But that, yeah, that's kind of more or less cut out of the film. It's kind of depressing how these things go in cycles because one of the things he talks about is how the election in the book he says the last election which I assume means one of the ones in the seven, in 1970 it says the last election was one was manipulated by the opinion polls and of course that immediately made me think of the most recent election, the most recent general election here, yes. where you not necessarily I mean opinion polls themselves are slightly outdated but you could certainly argue that focus groups and things and opinions and Yes, you you could argue that that's something that's still very, very contemporary. It's interesting, because I, as I was thinking about the movie the other day, it did make me think that there's something about this, like the X-Files, that the idea of a man who can cause mm. catastrophes to happen is a very X-Files idea. But the idea that this also ties into government conspiracies yes, yeah. and uh, the secret state and cutting civil liberties and all that kind of thing that's even more X-Files. Yes, yeah, it's so kind of uncanny, isn't it? It makes, it, you know, it makes one wonder if Chris Carter read the book or saw the movie. It's not and impossible. It's, and it's, yeah. There's a whole different podcast to be made on the subject of Chris Carter's influences because I would never accuse him of plagiarism, but I think Chris Carter at some point saw Quatermass in the Pit, probably the Hammer film version, and doesn't probably doesn't even remember seeing it, but when you look at the Martians' plot to colonise the Earth in Quatermass and the Pit, and then look at what the aliens were planning to do in the X-Files with the bees and the black oil, and it's... A, I mean... I, I think it's been, been established more recently that they were making that up as they went along. And yeah. They've all, and they've all but admitted that they were making that but up. But that, there's something about that kind of invasion by genetic proxy mm. that, that is very, very similar to Quatermass and the Pit. And yeah, who knows, maybe Chris Carter saw a back-to-back double bill of Quatermass and the Pit and the Medusa Touch when he was 11. I can uh, offer the tidbit that Quatermass and the Pit was released in the US as 5 million years to Earth. Uh, okay. And John Carpenter had actually cited it as a major influence on him. 
to the point where his film Prince of Darkness he wrote under the pseudonym Martin Quatermass. Oh yes, he did, and, apparently... and it's a very Nigel Neal script. And he actually worked with Nigel Neal on the script for Halloween 3. Mm. Originally a Nigel Neal story, but he took his name off it because he objected to all the people having their arms and legs pulled off. <laughs> Which is fair enough. I suppose so, yeah. From what I hear, Nigel Neal was... The grumpy old man of sci-fi. Yes, the most cantankerous man in Britain. In fact, <laughs> a, a cantankerous writer discussed with the modern world? <laughs> I wonder where I've heard that yeah, before. I mean, what... Yes. Who knows where the people that write these things get their ideas from. Yeah. Well, actually, Chris Carter has cited The Night Stalker, Colchak Night Stalker, as, yeah, yeah. as, as a yeah. great influence in terms of the tone on the Xbox. So he has, he has been very open about his own influences. There are two references to the Medusa Touch in Songs by the Manic Street Preacher, which I think, yeah, because they're angry about everything too. Yeah. But uh, it kind of fits with their, but the, that's... their almost avoidance of success. <laughs> It's one of those films that if you scratch the surface enough, a lot of people love it, but not many people seem... It never really gets cited as a great film. It's, you know, I think Lou Grade is a couple of years away from releasing Raise the Titanic and driving his empire into bankruptcy. Richard Burton is at the point in his career when he's just making any old rubbish. He just made The Wild Geese. Okay, so... And that that was actually a big hit. Yeah. But... Yeah, by this point he was just doing oh, how, how much will you pay me? Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's one of those films, I think, where it, it just gets overlooked because it kind of comes at a bad point in everyone's... I mean, 1978, probably not the world's greatest year for the British film industry generally. Well, no, by the late 70s, I mean, you can almost trace it by the trajectory of the carry-on movies because by the, <laughs> early, by the early 70s, the carry-on movies were turning into... I think smart is a bit harsh, but they were becoming increasingly mm. lazy in using sex as a joke. I think Kenneth Williams had very, very harsh things to say about Carry On Emmanuel, which must again be around this time. It was 1978. Oh, well, there you go. So, yeah, um, I see, 78. Not... The death of Carry On, and thus pretty much the death of the British film industry until uh, Richard Curtis. But it's a film that I, I think... It's it just it stayed in circulation because it was it was part of the catalogue. It was part of a catalogue that was owned by a big company that had an interest in seeing its films at least stay roughly in circulation. I don't think the fact that it came out on VHS and DVD was just let's chuck all these things out and make a bit of money off them. I don't think there was ever anything more calculated than that. But in a way, because it's such an undercover film everybody feels like they're discovering it for the first time. I mean, that's, again, going back to one of the reasons why I like it, is it's the classic example of everybody loves Star Wars, but you can't sidle up to somebody and go, watch this, it's brilliant, because they'll just go, yes, I know. Whereas a film like this, you can actually, you can show it to other people, and it is, yes. it's, it's, you know, it's a, ter- it's, it's, it's a film that you can show to other people, and it is, effectively, it's a film that you can pass on your love for. And... When you hunt around on the internet, I don't think anyone apart from Roger Ebert really has anything bad to say about it. And I'm not surprised it shows up then in stuff like The Manic Street Pictures because I can, I can imagine that it's a film that everybody encounters and everybody thinks they're the first person to discover it and then everybody wants to tell everybody. It's one of the reasons why when you were asking for suggestions for this podcast, it was like, yeah, this seems like such an obvious film to suggest. 
And it's strange, actually, that I haven't thought of it myself. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what I was thinking was that the two films I was going to suggest to you were this and Night of the Demon. And they are both, in their own way, I think, they're, that, they're an example of that supernatural thriller genre that there's something about Britain that they, we seem to do stuff like that really well whenever we do films about them. I think you can probably even lump in Quatermass and the Pit to that. And the nice thing about this, the Medusa Touch and Night of the Demon, is they both have sequences where the main character goes to see a spiritualist, which is also another nice coincidence. And which is a very English thing as mm. well. When you suggested Night of the Demon, I said, I said no on the grounds that it's too well known. You're quite possibly, And in yeah. fact, I, not only a few months ago, I actually showed Night of the Demon to a group of friends. And I was a bit concerned that they wouldn't take to a... British horror film from the late 50s in black and white but they watched it in near silence and they seemed to really enjoy it that's good so I think that, it, that I, I see what you mean it's something that people tend to discover mm. separately but it's a much better known film than The Medusa Touch yes yes well, that, although, it, well, although like The Medusa Touch it's also a film that's been quoted a pop song because it's in uh, a Kate Bush song yes of course yeah it has hasn't it quite a mess in the pit however everyone has heard of yes so yeah Yes, especially Chris Carter. Well, exactly, and John Carpenter. Yeah. All the C's. So, so if you go back to the, the plot, the mm, plot. Yes. Um, so one oddity is that they, having read through Mauler's notebooks and traced this, his psychiatrist, the psychiatrist is called Zonfeld, yes. which is the most obviously made-up name in history. In the original book, the character is, I believe, an it, elderly... Jewish Holocaust survivor. Yes, yeah, yeah. A Jewish psychologist. Um, in the film, Lee Remick? In the, Lee Remick, the glamorous young American movie star, and prominent, she's, prominently billed for the purposes of overseas sales. And she's, she's fine. She's I mean, very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah actually, saying that she's fine is, is, is unfairly understating her performance. And again, the interesting thing is they make very few changes to her character um, or to the dialogue that she says I mean that's what's what's interesting about this in a way is that it's almost a textbook example of how to adapt a book into a film it's done very very sympathetically and whole chunks of dialogue are just taken verbatim and it's very very odd that you can read a book where the character is an elderly Jewish doctor and then see the film and the same character is Lee Remick (laughs) (laughs) I think I think that works very well as Detective Inspector Brunel talks to her, mm. she explains Mauler's stories about how he may have... I, I, the story I like about how he was very ill with measles mm. when he was a child, and his Irish nanny was horrible and treated him absolutely horrifically. And he prayed to the devil that she would die, which she did. And that brings up I think a, an ongoing strand at the time which was the religious horror movie yes and particularly in light of Lee Remick being in the movie The Omen oh yes which yes. has the American stars in the British setting it's only a couple of years earlier based on a successful book that had been written to cash in on Rosemary's Baby I think hmm. I think the other thing as well is that with the book being released in 1973 the book um Takes a takes an equally cynical line on Christianity, and the book itself actually came out against the backdrop of 
uh, a group called, I think, the Festival of Light. Oh, yes. Mary Whitehouse, Cliff Richard. Um, the guy whose name escapes me, who used to be an intellectual and ended up criticising the life of Brian. Um, and made Malcolm like, Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge. That, that little bunch. And so the book was written against the background of these people and, and a sort of spiritual revival that was going on in the UK. And it's very, very cynical about their motives. It's very anti-establishment. Yes. And the film, for the, all the times that it's sort of saying that Mauler is a maniac and that he is, a, he is effectively a murderer by proxy, it avoids saying that his, his, actually his personal opinions are wrong. Hmm. I, I want to jump to the climax of the movie to, yeah, to underline point. the point of this. Um, there's, a, there's a recurring phrase in, in Mauler's journals about the West Front, and it's only towards the end of the film where we realise what this is referring to. It's actually the West Front of Minster Cathedral, it's St Paul's. In oh, it's St Paul's. I yeah, assume yeah. that it would be Westminster, Westminster Cathedral. No, Westminster no. Funny Rally. enough, it's it's very definitely St Paul's. Um, well, that makes that sort of more iconic. Mm. So it makes it more more interesting. But um, apparently, the reason is that they couldn't obviously film at Westminster Cathedral. They had to film at Bristol Cathedral, mm. which inside and outside looks nothing like Westminster Cathedral. But they still had to say it was in London. So they kind of go halfsies and just make up something completely unrelated for the name. And the one time we see that on television, they've actually, rather than having a caption on the film footage that says Minster Cathedral, they've actually just stuck the words to the TV screen. I did wonder, but I was looking at that and I noticed that, and it's, this is the, the advantage of the higher resolution of Blu-ray, is that you suddenly see all these weird details. And I couldn't work out, I could see a sort of shadow, and I couldn't work out what was causing that. But yeah, apparently... What do they reckon? Direction is mainly problem solving. And in that case, yeah. the problem was how do we get this caption on screen? Letra set and a TV monitor. And well, it, uh, it's only on screen for a few seconds, yeah. and if you're not looking for it, then it doesn't really notice. But I thought that was quite amusing. It's kind of charming in a way. It seems like a very old school piece of filmmaking because obviously these days you just and we just press this button on the computer. I suppose it's 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 an example of the way that that filmmakers didn't used to sweat the small details. It was this thing that it's going to be on screen for three seconds, who cares? It looks rubbish, but nobody's really going to see it. Whereas later on, when you get the destruction of Minster Cathedral, the last effect shot, where the actual cathedral collapses, looks a little bit ropey, so they put it on a TV screen instead, and they just about kind of get away with it. I actually think that shot looks fantastic. Okay. And that whole, that whole scene, because it turns out the west front is the west mm. front of the the church, yeah. because it's on the verge of collapse. Even though it's on the verge of collapse, there's going to be a Thanksgiving service inside with the Queen and all mm. the Commonwealth heads of states, which, even if there wasn't a man who can spontaneously cause terrible things to happen, is a terrible idea. Yes. But um, Mauler, psychically, from his hospital bed, still in his coma, causes the whole place to collapse. And that whole collapse sequence looks incredible. It's, it's absolutely... Perfect. It's an incredibly well-done piece of nastiness. There's a shot of a panicking crowd, and they run out of one of the doors, and somebody trips over, and there's literally a wall of people, and there were people falling forwards onto the people already on the floor. And it is exactly what you would expect to see in a situation like that. Whereas normally, if you see panic on films, it's all kind of quite nicely choreographed, and it's all there'll be lots of people running around, but because it's a film set and because nobody wants to get sued they'll all be running around in very safe, well-defined ways. This actually looks messy and it looks ugly. 
It's one of the few times in the film you see blood, I think, isn't it? There's that, yeah, there is that great moment, well, I think it's great, where some kind of glass fitting falls on a woman's head and she crosses the ground and there's just a cutaway shot of just a splat of blood mm. across the masonry. And, and it's, it's nasty. Yeah. But you think, well, yeah, but the it, it would be. The film's kind of earned it at that point because it's been very restrained the rest of the way through. Yeah, but yes, particularly when Mauler's body is found at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> it's... The, the shots are arranged so that we don't we can't see his head because mm. the inference is that his head has just been beaten to nothing and yeah. everyone is shocked that he's still breathing because he shouldn't be alive and later on when he's in hospital and they're putting electrodes onto him I thought well, don't press too hard yeah, yeah, press yeah, his brain right through, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and actually the, the little detail that the, the, the weapon that's used to beat him is a bust of Napoleon yes yeah not as I thought when I first saw the book. I, I, I can't begin to describe how lurid the book cover is. It's book, fantastic. The, it's, incidentally, the, the book cover is on the Wikipedia page ah, yes. for the book, and it's the most spectacular shot, but in the corner, for some reason, it's got the top of Nelson's column. Well, and I was wondering for ages why that was there, but obviously it's because... That's I think it's Napoleon. It's, it's actually, yeah, I think it's Napoleon, but it does not... It does oh, no, have, Nelson, obviously! Yeah. But it does make, essentially the cover of the book makes it look like Centre Point has been relocated to Trafalgar Square. And also, uh, it's, it's, and also because of the angle, it looks like it's falling over. Yeah, but actually it's, just, it's, a little, um, it's a little bust of Napoleon which is inexplicably hovering in midair. And which has a tiny little streak of blood on one shoulder, which is a nice little horrible detail. The jacket illustration was by Colin Hay, so well, 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 well done, done, Colin. That's a brilliant bit of yeah, design work. Yeah, you and, were, and, and that's I mean, if it's a first edition, that's what you want on the cover. Mm. A really big plane crash yes. into a recognisable building as well. Yeah. Because I imagine Centrepoint was fairly new at the time. It was. I mean, Centrepoint itself was quite notorious at the time, I think, because it stayed empty for years because the guy that built it could afford to leave it empty. And that's one of the reasons there's a homeless charity in the UK called Centrepoint. Oh, yes. And it was because there was a lot of outrage about the fact that this big iconic building went up in the middle of London and the developer just left it empty because he could afford to and because he was waiting for rents to increase to the point where it was actually worth letting it. Which is exactly the sort of person who John Mauler would hate. Yes, yeah. So it's almost as though he aimed that plane. Although, obviously, at the time, Centre Point was pretty much the only mm. really high building in London anyway. Yes, yeah, it would have been that or the post office tower and the IRA had already had a go at the post office tower. Well, they hadn't um, tried hijacking the plane. Yeah, <laughs> let's not give them ideas. No, this is true. But in, but in the film, inter- I mean, and again, it's kind of hard to know whether this is deliberate or whether it's sort of the limitations of the special effects technology at the time. It doesn't look like centre point, and I don't know whether that's to avoid it being too realistic. In the same way that Minster Cathedral, there's obviously a slight step back from reality. I do kind of wonder whether somebody was a little bit concerned about being accused of bad taste. Well, in the ca- I think in the case of Minster Cathedral, it was more a practical issue mm. because it clearly had to be a made-up church yeah, yeah. out of sheer practicality. In the case of Centrepoint, it could have been that they were concerned about being sued for plagiarism yeah, because it's such a new building yeah. that, well, you've ripped off our architectural designs, yeah, that's even true. though it's the real building. So maybe they're sort of just adjusting it just to get around that legal issue. Mm. 
but yeah, the um, the whole recurring theme of disaster in the middle of that, uh, even down to I think it's where Brunel is going to visit Zonfeld for the first time, and he's walking up the steps inside the, sort of the townhouse where her offices are, and he trips on one step because mm. there's a loose stair rod, and it's sort of kind of passed over, but it's like everywhere, everything connected to Mauler, it has something of death about it. What's odd about the, the film is that it doesn't. The jump, it does go for a couple of jump scares, but they're not related to the actual storyline. So they're not related to Richard Burton and you know, his ability to create disaster. There's a sequence where a car is suddenly out of control and it's driving towards the police inspector, but it just turns out to be Duff driving badly for a joke. Yeah, his second, um, his second thing come up. And he plays a, a, pr- a really weird yeah, prank on him with a sheet, the, with, a sheet yeah. with a balloon with a big face drawn on yes, it yes a demon from Duff or whatever the note says yeah. Yeah. and there's and as you say the bit with the stairwood and it's it's as if the film again it, it, it wants to be a horror film and it wants the audience to jump but it doesn't want the audience to jump at the stuff that the film is about I'm struggling yes. to kind of it's trying to sort of fit the formula yeah in fact it's odd because the kind of uh, horror film that's based around jump scares is much more I wouldn't say modern innovation because it's basically a ghost train and I've mm, quite yeah. a opinion of that kind of horror movie. But it's sort of trying to say, well, here's some, some sort of shock moments. Yes, here's but the actual, But the actual film itself, the actual... the scary content of the movie is more based around suspense, based around the idea of this man who can stare up at a plane and make it drop out of the sky. Mm. He can look at you... And make you and die. Give you, like, give you a hard Paddington bear stare and you'll be dead of a heart attack in an hour. And yeah. that's the scary part. But it, unfortunately, a man staring is not wildly cinematic. No. Even when it's Richard Burton, who... He's... Oh, he could, he could burn through lead with those eyes. And he's absolutely terrific, because mm. he's just such a fascinating actor to watch. He's a very sullen presence in this film, all the way through. The, the way that the film tells the story, so it starts off with the death of one person, then the death of two people, then... It kind of goes up exponentially after that. Yeah. Because then it's an entire school. It's one teacher and a few boys. That's true, actually. And in fact, it's later established that Brunel hears about this and he assumes, ah, well, the, the, the families of those boys, they would have motive mm. to kill him because Mauler believes he's responsible for the children's death. But it's later mentioned offhand, oh no, all those families are dead. Okay, yeah, I missed And I that. thought, that's worrying. <laughs> yes. As that... Is that genuinely just coincidence, or is, mm. is it like a curse that Mauler has spread? Yeah, possibly. Um, one thing that ties back to the title is Medusa itself. In the old mythology, according to the uh, internet page I looked up, Medusa was created to fight the gods. And Mauler does talk a number of times about his loathing of God in the in, Christian terms mm. and of course he's as I said earlier he prayed to the devil this so the idea that I, I quite like is that maybe that all these world disasters are the devil's work and that Mauler himself is the antichrist yeah possibly I mean I think in the in the film he more or less has a line where he says something like he something about he's going to do God's dirty work for him I forget what the exact Line is, and, and again, it's it's something else that comes up in the book, that what he wants to do is he effectively wants to destroy religion, and that's one of the reasons why 
he sees the service of thanks at the cathedral as such an obvious symbolic thing to destroy because it kind of proves that either God doesn't exist, which is why this terrible event happens, or God exists but he's weak and powerless and unable to stop it from happening. And actually what he's aiming for is to, one way or another, to persuade people not to believe in God. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One other thing is that the, the service of Thanksgiving is actually... It's Thanksgiving for raising a lot of money. Mm. And his, his very cynical view of the world does encompass the old capitalism. So mm. well, it's, it's the fact that maybe it, if it was a service of Thanksgiving for something positive, that would be different. But it's, no, it's Thanksgiving for people giving us money. Yes, and that's his argument as well. Is is why why should you give people money? Why should people give money to do this when there's obviously more needy things? Oh yeah, yeah. He has that wonderful bit of dialogue about the space shot. Yes, where he actually he does, he does say that uh, in that whole bit that he's doing God's work for him, but I bring bring the cathedral down on their unworthy heads. Yeah, and I mean, equally as well, he talks about the space shot and he talks about... The millions that the millions they spent on feeding the hungry. And of course, what that feeds back into is stuff like uh, Gil Scott Heron's White Has Gone to the Moon, which is more or less echoing exactly the same sentiments, which is that, as it says, White Has Gone to the Moon. They could have spent all that money down here, but no, they've gone to the moon instead. And uh, there's a fantastic phrase that's used in the book and it's used in the film where one of the astronauts says something like, I'm just a guy doing a job, and he says, he describes it as finger-licking nausea. Um, <laughs> which get, yeah, I hadn't realised, that used to be the advertising slogan for KFC back in the days when it was Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was described as finger-licking good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I hadn't realised how long that advert, that advert campaign must have hung around for years then. Well, in fairness, when I think of Kentucky Fried Chicken, I also think of finger-licking nausea. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> that coleslaw is just like... It's like eating a boiled foot. <laughs> Something I haven't mentioned is Mauler's day job. Mm. He starts, he, he's, he's an author and he's written several books which have titles... We don't quite see in any of the titles. Mm. One of them is called The Incinerator. Yes. Um, we, we, uh, there's no, absolutely no detail at any time given to what his books are actually about. It's, I don't think. it's something that comes up a little bit more in the book, actually, and I bet you I can't find the right page, which is a shame. And in fact, it's, it's worth mentioning that at one point, Brunel goes and he interviews Mauler's publisher, and the publisher is played by Derek Jacobi. Mm. And this would only have been a couple of years after I, Claudia, so this was a really big mm. star cameo. And there's a fantastic shot in there where Brunel's talking to the publisher, and the camera pans across from Brunel's oh, yes, publisher. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it pans back again, without yeah. a cut, to Mauler. So we're suddenly mm. in a flashback. And then the publisher walks across camera, apparently dressed differently. Yes. But it's, but it's actually just a, a very sort of quick change in clothing. I think he's just taken his jacket it's off. It's done, like but again, and it goes back to... It's, it's, this is a very, very well-edited film, and it holds together. And in theory, you could have quite easily got lost by the structure and not really been able are we watching in the past or are we watching a flashback but actually it, it all hangs together very well and it's, it's surprisingly stylish in places yeah it's, it's in fact produced. I think there's a what do they call the shot in Jaws a reverse dolly 
at some point when Richard, but you know, contra zoom, contra zoom, the the famous shot of um, Roy Schneider when he's on the beach and and the shark comes up for the first time, and the camera pulls away and somehow the the cam the cam the camera dollies backwards, but it zooms in at the same yeah. rate. So the world seems to go. The world all seems to rush away from from Roy Schneider or rush towards him. I forget exactly how it works. Anyway. I'm getting very, very bogged down in trying to <laughs> describe something visual. There's a very similar moment in this, and I wish I could remember where it is now, but it's at one point when Mahler is using his powers, I think, or, or describing them. And it's interesting because you don't notice it because it's done much more slowly. But it's, I think it's, exactly, it's the same kind of shot. It's just done at a different speed. So that whereas the one in Jaws has that real moment of, look at me. Yeah, but it's that great it's, moment of realisation yeah, where... Yeah. It's oh a, my god! It doesn't. It doesn't draw attention to itself in the Medusa touch, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere. It sounds familiar, and it's the sort of thing that I think would work really well because it's that the way that foreground and background seem to sort of stretch mm. in that way with the with the figure in the centre then sort of is the is the focal point. Yeah, and you could do that absolutely here, where you have the, the background stretching away from Richard Burton. As he glowers at you. Yes, yeah, yeah, with disapproval. Yeah, I found the bit that I was looking for in the... Actually, this is one of the weaker sections of the book, but they talk about Mauler's recent novels, and they basically say that all the events that happen are events that happened also in his books. So it says, two years ago he wrote a story with a subplot in which hundreds died in a jumbo jet crash. Last year he made the rise and fall of a supersonic airliner the centrepiece of a novel, because in the book there's a whole bit about Concord as well. He makes Concord crash. These are back in the days when... These were back in the good old days of the white heat of technology, and I think when the book was being written, Concord was still being tested. So it crashes on a test flight. Five years ago, he hinted at the disappearance of a nuclear submarine because that's another thing that was cut out from the film, but there's a submarine goes missing as well. And then uh, two years later, his first piece of science fiction in which three men died on the moon, it's all there in his books. And what was the subject of his current piece of fiction? The death of a novelist who convinced a psychiatrist he was capable of destruction by kind of telekinetics. So the book suddenly goes a bit weird and self-referential at the end. Imagine if that had been Van Greenaway's last book. Yeah. That would have been terrifying. Yeah. I mean, who knows? He's got a very, very short Wikipedia entry. I mean, well, it does list his other books, and he wrote, this was one of his, his earlier books, he wrote mm. at least as many more books again. He ended up writing, I think, about a dozen, and he died in 1988. Okay. But it's based on this. It seems a shame that his work's been forgotten. Mm. And as, I think, as we said in the book, the inspector character is not French. No, he's, he's, he's just he's, a standard English. English copy, his, yeah. his name is Inspector Cherry, and he's actually. There are a number of sequels with Cherry investigating other strange goings-on, one of which mentions that Mauler is still alive. Wow. <laughs> so, given the ending of the book, mm. I mean, by this point, let's blow the ending. But the We're... film's still got one more scare, and this yes. is the thing that I remember staying with me as a kid when I watched this. And it's, a, it's so good, it's so frightening. I mean, I found it yeah. particularly frightening because I've always had a terror of nuclear power Brunel's rushed to the hospital Mm. unplugged everything and pulled all the tubes out and Mauler appears to finally die but Duff I think it's Duff or whoever is by Mauler's bedside notices his hand is moving so they give him a pen and a piece of paper and he writes something and what he writes is different in the book and the film 
but with virtually the same consequence. In the book, he writes Holy Loch, which is where American nuclear subs were yes, based. Yeah, still are, it's not up towards Glasgow. Should they be based in the UK still? <laughs> it's kind of... Don't they have their own coast? <laughs> A top tip for anybody that wants to go on holiday is if you go to the Isle of Arran, you can actually sit on the Isle of Arran and you can watch the nuclear submarines manoeuvring in the Clyde estuary because they can't submerge as they come out of the Clyde. So you sit there and watch all these things go past. No, as far as I know, they're still there. Like like a threading, mm. watching the nuclear subs go in. Absolutely. <laughs> Got to pass the time somehow. But in the, in the film, there's another sort of recurring background news story about there being a peace march mm. on Windscale, which we now know better as Sellafield, the nuclear power station in Cumbria. And this actually ties in, I think, with Van Greenaway's first book, The Crucified City, yeah. which sounds... Sounds brilliant. It sounds like the sort of thing I would love to read. Yeah. It's set after a nuclear war, and it's about a final peace march on Aldermaston, the nuclear research facility with one of the marchers apparently being the second coming of Christ. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating idea. Yeah. But we see in the background of, of everything that's going on, we hear that this, this march goes badly, that there are riots. What with it being a nuclear power station, I assume that many of the guards are armed. Mm. And eventually, the word that Mauler writes down on this piece of paper is windscale. And then I think his eyes open. And his eyes open. In a big close-up. And yeah. another big close-up. And then the sound of the EEG machine kind of swells. In fact, you've got Gordon Jackson, isn't it? As yes, Gordon Jackson's in it. He's standing there in front of this, and he looks at the screen with horror, and the sound of the EEG machine swells. As a kid, you know, you'd sit there and you'd watch Digby, the biggest dog in the world or something. And you get to the end of the film and, hooray, Digby's back to normal size, all is well. Or you get to Star Wars... And Evil is vanquished. Yes, yeah, yeah, everyone's happy. Um, this was the first time I'd come across a story that didn't stop at the end. And that, that I remember that was one of the things that really gripped me as a kid, was just, but you can't stop there. What, yeah. what happens now? I, I mean, that's, it, that's what makes me wonder about what the sequels must be like, or what the further stories are. I mean, is it, I can imagine a... A, a post-apocalyptic detective series mm. might have mileage, but only so long as the characters don't die from radiation yes, poisoning. Yeah. And the inference, of course, that that Mauler is still alive. I mean, it, it, what with him apparently either being the Antichrist, perhaps. Mm. Uh, I mean, there, there is that scene where he. Uh, oh, one thing we haven't mentioned: who tried to kill him? Mm. It's. I mean, in the midst of the rest of the movie, we forget that. It's a murder mystery yes, yeah. where there's only one suspect. It yes. was Zonfeld. And there's actually, and it was only when I went back and watched it this time, there's a really nice moment where she gives herself away. When she goes back to the police inspector's flat, he offers her a drink and she says, Scotch. And of course, at the start of the film, there's this, been this whole mystery about, well, Mother's put out two glasses and one of them's Scotch, and, they don't, and that's how they know that the person that came in and attacked him wasn't just some random crazy. It was obviously meant to be a visitor. And then she comes in and she orders exactly the same drink that was put out for the visitor. And that's the point when the police inspector cracks the case because suddenly he knows exactly who tried to kill Werner. Yeah. And it's really thrown away, but it's really it's just nice that it's in there because, again, it shows that everybody concerned really cared about the small details. Mm. It's easy to argue that Zonfeld did what she did for a very good reason because she'd gone to his apartment... 
and she was starting to become convinced of that he, that he really did have this power, and he proved it to her by making the plane crash. Mm. And that's the point where he crosses the line into actually deliberately killing people, I guess. That's yes. the point where he actually becomes the antagonist. The, 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 there must be a better word than antagonist. It's the point where he becomes the supervillain, basically. Yeah, it? I mean, uh, it reminds me of um, Wanted, the um, Mark Miller's comic book, Mark Miller being another fantastically misanthropic writer. Did he write Kingsman? Yes, I, I saw think King- he did. I saw Kingsman and I found it utterly hateful. But um, the comic book on which, the, because the film is sort of passable, but the comic book on which it's based posits the idea that the world we live in is actually a post-superhero world and that all the supervillains of the world ganged up, killed all the superheroes and have collectively brainwashed everyone hmm. into accepting their lot in life. So the idea that all the disasters of the world are caused <laughs> actually by supervillains like John Mauler Okay, and yeah, he he does go from being an unpleasant person who's had these terrible things happen to him to actually embracing this power, mm. and now he's said, "Yes, the world is corrupt and evil, and I'm going to tear the whole thing down. So I'm going to blow up Scotland. Yeah. I'm going to crash this plane." And we see a front page of the newspaper. It says seven hundred and seventy something people killed yeah. because a plane crashed in the middle of London, and it's. There's a terri- it's horrifying. There's really. a terrific bit as well where Peter Van Greenaway nails the way that newspapers would handle this kind of thing. Because there's a point in the book where the death toll reaches 747. And of course it's a 747 that crashes. Oh. So he, they, they walk past and they see that a newspaper headline is just 747. And it's a really nice moment when he perfectly captures the kind of crassness that papers are capable of. Just looking at recent events with the, um, mm. I, I, I'm going to mention the deaths of the TV journalists in Virginia. The front page of at least one tabloid newspaper using a photoshopped image to show a gun being fired. Was that a photo? I mean, that was her. I, it I, wasn't real, and if it was real, then that's, if not, that's bad. That's I looked at that, and my my kind of my initial reaction was this: thinking, imagine doing that for a living, making those kind of images. And I just kind of felt sorry for whoever it was that... Because it just seems like such a... a soulless thing to have to do. It's... it's I, I just... I couldn't believe it when I saw it, because... Mm. It's indefensible. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 747 moment. Exactly. It's, you know... That even then, the papers... I mean, I mean... The, We'd have to look at disasters of the time, mm. really. Sort of, uh, w- w- what major disasters can we think of that occurred in the early seventies? Well, you press covered them. You would have. I mean, it's kind of interesting because when they're flicking through Muller's um, scrapbook of disaster, there do seem to. Be, it, it's kind of hard to tell whether they're very, very convincing mock-ups or whether they have actually just gone with real front pages from newspapers. And I, I did mean, and I, I didn't do my homeworks, for which I can only apologise, but I did mean to go back and see if I could work out whether those, those were genuine front pages or fakes. But they're very, if, they're, if they're fakes, then again, they're very convincing fakes because they capture exactly how you would expect the press to report those kind of things. Obviously the ones about the Apollo 13-style disaster in space are fakes, but there's others. I think there's one that's something like, think of the what of the children or something. I forget exactly what... That could have been any story, though. (laughs) Well, this is true. We have mentioned a number of times the dialogue. Mauler has that line that's in voiceover, 
and I noted the tone in particular because when I was re-watching the film, making these notes, I watched it in two parts, and this is the exact midpoint of the movie. Brunel and Duff are driving past, driving down Whitehall, mm. past the cenotaph, and we have the line and voiceover from Mauler, to build a cenotaph, first choose a million victims. Yeah, it's a terrific line. And it's, it's brutal, but... Mm. You know, it's a memorial for the victims of the First World War, and you, it, I think that's that's hard to argue with, really. I think in the in the book, I think that comes. It's they've, it's one of those areas where they've just moved things around a little bit, and in the book, that comes from when he's trying to defend Loveless in court, which is another. Which is, I mean, I I wrote down almost that whole speech, then it's filled an entire page in my notebook because it's a statement of intent. And I feel that it's not just Mauler, it's Van Greenaway. It does kind of come across as that. Look at this venerable courtroom. We're supposed to be civilised, aren't we? But we do shove innocence into that chamber of horrors, stuff with pain, mutilation and death, and say, look, children, here's what put the great in Britain. And he's talking about the Imperial War Museum, because Loveless had protested against the Imperial mm. War Museum in some non-violent way, and believes that it should be knocked down or taken down, and he's he's in court for it and Mauler delivers this speech which is I think, I think it's supposed to be his summing up and it's it starts reasonable and moderately respectful but he just gets more and more worked up and ends up with this saying you know, where in this where in that asylum of grotesques do we find friend the armament manufacturer's checkbook together with grandpa's piss pathetic medal and artificial leg it is not the defendant who should be on trial, but a besotted establishment who can cheerfully send a generation to slaughter in the name of war, and yet has the audacity to bring a hapless fool to trial for uttering mere words. And Richard Burton's saying this, so every word is like a dagger. And it's intercut with, I think, is it some Jason Fleming as the crusty old judge? I forget. Not Jason Fleming. No, no, it can't be Jason Fleming. It's not Gordon Fleming. It's Gordon Fleming. It's a Fleming, so I'm just going to have to... It's not well. It's not Jason Fleming because Jason Fleming, I don't think, would have been born by that point. Okay. He would have been very tiny. Yes, uh, my mistake. Um, Robert Fleming, yeah, uh, Judge right. McKinley, as as the oh yes, as the sort of the archetypal crusty old High Court judge. So what you get is you get Richard Burton's very very well performed speech intercut with the sort of outraged High Court judge, and it just it works very very well. It reminds me of the case involving Jeremy Thorpe and the man who was supposedly involved in blackmailing him. Yes. But who, I think we can say now that everyone's dead, he was Jeremy Thorpe's male bit on the side and Jeremy Thorpe was a closeted homosexual and possible spy. And the summing up in the trial was so outrageously biased that anyone could possibly impugn Thorpe's reputation as an MP as a pillar of the establishment, as a man who knew how to wear a pocket square, that Peter Cook performed that incredible yes, he did, speech he? that night at an Amnesty International gig. And he wrote it in an afternoon. And it has that, that sort of line towards the end. And now I instruct the jury to retire, as indeed should I, to consider their verdict of not guilty. And it's exactly that attitude... Mm that we get from the judge who with Loveless you know, convicted of wanting the Imperial War Museum to be knocked down and there's a place at the Imperial War Museum it depends on 
um, yeah. the way it's where it presents history. But for for this kind of protest, nine years in jail. Yes, oh, and yes. it completely destroys his life. He ends up homeless and being run over by a bus. Yes, and um, in the again in the book, it's used that bit of background is used as an example of how the state, the secret state, is corrupt. Because in the in the book, he is on trial for attempting to blow up the Bank of England, and the implication in the book is that they've this guy's just a patsy that they've deliberately set this. They wanted to set this fake bomb threat in order to cause a bit of panic and to make people more willing to accept the reduction in their civil liberties. Exactly like the Reichstag fire. Yeah. And this guy then becomes a patsy for that crime and they just kind of tie the, they kind of get rid of two problems at once. Mm. It's it's a very brutal film. It really I mean Richard Burton I mean Mauler is the hero of the movie and he's a mass murderer and misanthrope. Brunel, I mean, every everyone in the movie who we're supposed to like winds up killing people. The hero, it's, the, the, there can't be that many films where the hero fails. I mean, in this one, the hero, the hero doesn't. He solves the murder. But I think it's well, yeah. He, he doesn't he, really accomplish a lot else. And uh, re, there's a reasonably common trope in horror movies that yeah, I suppose that's that, true. That the, the, the evil triumphs, the monster triumphs. But it's certainly very much of its time that much more cynical turn of the 70s and if the, the movie itself does feel like it's a kind of merging of different genres I think it's mentioned on the commentary that it feels like it's sort of religious horror like The Exorcist and The Omen and Rosemary's Baby merged with disaster movies like mm. The Towering Inferno and all the Owen Allen classics we have The, you know, the, the Towering Exorcist which yeah. is about to because it's about set six foot six but that also combined with the police procedural, mm. like the Sweeney or the French Connection, of course. Yes, I and mean, that, it, and that kind of the private life of the the detective that we see. We get into yeah. the French Connection, and there's that whole uh, there's a little sequence in the Medusa Touch where uh, Macduff is cooking Brunel dinner. Yes, yeah, which is sort of a nice little detail that they're actually. They're actually quite friendly, yeah. And they're actually, you know, they get on well, and they'll actually willingly spend time together outside of work. Yes, he's teaching him to cook something. You know, teaching him to he's, cook some French dish, I think. Which I he completely ruined. Yes, yeah. <laughs> because because he's English. You can't imagine it with a different cast, and and certainly I think if you would cast anybody else in the Richard Burton role, it would have been a much easier film to dismiss. I think um, there are so few actors, I think, who have that kind of charisma. Hmm. I was watching something online the other day talking about Michael Shannon and that he is this incredibly magnetic person. You cannot take your eyes off him when he's on screen. And he's really the only person, I think, now who could play that character. Mm. I mean, obviously, you know, people, people like me will make jokes about Sir Anthony Hopkins and things like that. Mm. But in the same way, I mean, I, I remember seeing about 10 minutes of Nixon when it was on film four or something. And he's not doing an impression of Nixon. He's just kind of... But somehow he he gives a charismatic enough performance that he embodies Nixon without looking or sounding anything like him. Um, and, yeah, it's... Yeah. Actually... A, Actors quite good at their job. Well, it ties in then with Silence of the Lambs because there... Anthony mm. Hopkins, again, has a lead performance as an incredibly charismatic, magnetic character 
who's barely in the film. He's a pa- apparently he has less than twenty minutes of screen time in a two-hour movie. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually. But he has impact mm. right the way through, and he's not even the protagonist in a sense because Clary Starling is the protagonist and she's the one investigating the serial killer. Yeah. Whereas here, everything is because of Mauler. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the, the film constantly revolves around him and. I think, as we've we've said repeatedly, it's a real achievement of the film that he feels like he is on screen, he, even when he isn't. He he casts a very very long shadow. He looms over everything. Yeah. Well, I think it's a really terrific film. I think it's very much a neglected classic. It's definitely one seeking out. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray from Network, and. I highly recommend it. Yeah, no, I, I thoroughly recommend it. I think it's a terrific film. And, and uh, again, as I said earlier, I think it's very much... There's a minor British tradition of sort of supernatural thrillers, and I think this fits very, very nicely into that kind of genre. Thanks once again to Chris Arnsby for making the time for this podcast. If you have any questions or comments about the Medusa Touch or any of our episodes, feel free to contact us at cinema underscore limbo via Twitter. Or if you want to contact me personally with any other recommendations you might have, it's at J underscore J underscore Phillips with two L's. But until next time, remember, I am the man with the power to create catastrophe. Goodbye and sleep well. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.